to Professor Lee. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce him to you uh, again. Um, Professor Lee uh, has joined us from all the way from Houston. Um, and he is uh, right now at the University of Houston downtown, where uh, he joined in about 2002. Uh, after receiving a doctoral degree in comparative politics, international relations, uh, Dr. Lee specializes in East Asian politics with an emphasis in domestic politics, foreign policy, and environmental governments of the People's Republic of China, a country uh, about which we'll be talking a lot today. Um, he does, his teaching is also aligned uh, towards some of these interests. For example, he teaches US policy since World War II, East Asian politics, Chinese politics, contemporary China, politics and animal rights, international political economy, US government, environmental politics, which he'll be offering soon. Um, so we are going to continue some of the conversations that we had uh, early in March, uh, when uh, the pandemic had hard, hardly broken out in India, and uh, during which time the pandemic was in full swing, both in China as well as some parts of Europe. A lot has happened since then, and we thought it would be a great idea to catch up with Professor Lee and get his insights um, so that he could share his wisdom once again with us. So welcome, uh, Professor Lee. Uh, thank you, Professor Anand. Uh, good to be here. So let me start off uh, with asking you a few questions, and then maybe we could take some questions that come from uh, the uh, audience as well. So um, it's this is actually a, a very nice way to follow up. Uh, and let me start up start off by asking about. Um, so you know when the last time that we spoke, the pandemic uh, in some ways was in full swing in Wuhan, China. It's been uh, controlled. It's under. It seems to be under control at this point in time. Um, and what were some of the measures that China undertook to control the pandemic, particularly uh, in terms of controlling the wildlife markets? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, you know, China was a hard hit. Uh, by the time we had our, you know, earlier submit, uh, seminar, uh, web, webinar here, uh, China was in full lockdown situation. Uh, I believe, you know, uh, lockdown in China is relatively easy because after all, China uh, is a country with one, you know, party in control and it's a top-down political system uh, and uh, it has a huge mobilization capability, uh, which is, you know, amazing and surprising, you know, to most other countries. Um, so China can do a lot of things, um, probably you know, more uh, relevant to the Chinese culture, Chinese political system, and also, you know, uh, the same, you know, practices or the measures are more likely to be adopted in East Asia, like uh, Korea, uh, Japan, uh, possibly Mongolia, and Vietnam, but less likely to be, uh, you know, introduced to other, you know, countries because they share the common you know, cultural background. So it's a, a more community uh, aware uh, people. And also uh, we have to look at the Chinese history and the history of East Asia. So these people, you know, went through thousands of years of uh, uh, frequent starvation, uh, frequent, uh, you know, internal uh, conflicts. So they had, uh, you know, uh, they had the idea that you had to always be prepared. When something happened, you can not rely on others. You had to rely on yourselves. Now, if you look at the United States, we have a huge alliance of people, you know, waiting for, you know, food, you know, uh, help. And uh, huge alliance of people, you know, getting uh, the uh, benefits, you know, checks from the government. We don't see that in China. We don't see that in uh, Korea. Because the people have the habit of safe. You had to save your money just for the eventuality of something may strike. So that's something what I say, you know, culturally, you know, politically, something that 
you know, China can be done, but not necessarily other societies. Now, the measures, China locked down Wuhan. We all know that on January the 23rd. And also, every province started to impose their lockdown, you know, uh, measures. And uh, what happened was, you know, internal travel was strictly uh, restricted and they imposed a massive contact chasing and the lockdown community and force the uh, you know people who had the symptoms to go through very rigid uh, testing um, so that i would say you know a combined efforts of a wuhan national government in control right and different local authorities you know adopting their own you know measures and have been able to control the uh, pandemic so that's the general situation right so political determination it's very important. And uh, one, one more thing I want to uh, emphasize is this. Uh, the national government in China uh, has been in very you know, strong control over the entire situation. And uh, the national government has been sending out uh, one message. There, there has been no conflicting messages to the society. Right? And the uh, government listens to the scientists and experts. So we have not seen, you know, President Xi Jinping talking about, hey, you can do this, you can do that. Right? He let the scientists to be in full control. So that's something important. So I wanted to sort of follow up uh, with another question since, uh, you know, you teach a lot of comparative politics and so on. Yes. Of course. Uh, yes. Something that caught my attention as I was hearing you uh, articulate what was going on in China is, uh, you know, the comparison with what was happening in the United States, right? So there seems to be one yes. sort of central message where different messages at the state levels, um, in some ways, you know, one could think about this as a, a weird coordination problem. Um, so because the president of the United States goes up on media and says one thing, but, you know, yeah. you have, uh, you know, the uh, governor of New York uh, essentially talking in a different yeah. language as well. So how is that uh, in China, the coordination between the provinces and the central government? So how does that work a bit of, a, you know, both in terms of a political history as well as maybe the comparisons between these two countries? Because it somehow makes me wonder that, you know, th there is a downside to democracy after all, right? So yes. in, in, from that perspective, if you could so somehow give us a contrast between these two countries, that would probably help some of our audience members to put where India stands in perspective. Yes, that's a great question. You know, I want to, you know, uh, shed a little bit of light on the United States. You know, COVID-19 is a national disaster the national public health crisis. So this kind of a you know, situation actually should have given the president the best opportunity for him to be in control. Now, like uh, 911 took place in 2001, and a lot of people before that did not like George Bush, uh, the president who won the election uh, with minority of the votes. Right? But when 911, you know, broke out or took place. Now, President Bush was in command and showed his leadership. And immediately, you know, people put aside all the political differences and, and stood behind him. So Donald Trump could have, you know, have done the same thing, right? By putting aside the differences and rallied the country behind him. But unfortunately, he had failed to do so. And of course, the United States is a federal system. Right, the national government, but still, national government should be the major, you know, force to lead the national, the entire country against this national crisis. But he, he failed it. Now we go back to to China. China's political system is a top down, as I said earlier. The national government, when when the national government see the problem, the leaders, the top leader has to take full control. Otherwise, right? Otherwise you know, the legitimacy of the regime would be in greater question. Now, there is another aspect which China does not have, but the United States. 2019 is a presidential election year. So that factor plays, you know, uh, a very, you know, important role in 
uh, Donald Trump's you know, decision to respond to the crisis. He has to make sure everything is geared towards his re-election you know, purposes. Now, China President Xi Jinping does not have that uh, you know, burden. Now, he doesn't need to worry about whatever he does would be attacked by his opponents. Uh, there is only one objective in his mind, get the pandemic under control, otherwise China's economy and people's livelihood would be jeopardized and his own legacy would be tarnished. So that's all he's concentrated about. Whereas in the United States, right, and Donald Trump, you know, he has, he's not a scientist, right? He knows very little about the crisis and he is still believing that something's not that serious. So he has a lot of things, you know, influenced by the election. So that's why uh, in the last two months, there are a lot of people in China started to ask whether, you know, Western style electoral politics is really good for the, for the people or not. Because when people, when the politicians care so much about the, uh, uh, their, you know, political career, personal political career, they sometimes put aside, put, put the national interest aside. So there's a lot of, you know, you know, question asking there about the political system in the, in the West. We, uh, last time when we spoke, um, we had a lot of discussion about the, uh, the wildlife markets, uh, the vet markets, and so on. Um, so any update on what's happened uh, since the last time we spoke? We uh, spoke about a couple of issues, if I recall. Uh, one was just about the size of these markets and the amount of trade that happens in these markets and the historical reasons behind why that might have happened. Um, yeah. And we also spoke about, you know, how that might be a source of not just this pandemic, but maybe others that might come through as well. The zoonotic, uh, uh, you know, infections that might actually spread as well. So yes. could you give us an update on, you know, what's the status of those markets? What has the government done to rein in or control these markets? Uh, what's the update on that? Yeah. You know, China... Uh, has, um, I would say, subculture or wildlife, you know, consumption, but it's just uh, among a very small number of people. Uh, so there is a lot of misperception about uh, uh, Chinese people loving to eat wild animal uh, meat. Uh, that's really not uh, uh, not true. Uh, it's mostly forced food. Uh, the demand for wildlife meat consumption has been promoted by the wildlife traders, the businesses. Now, people never ask for wildlife meat, right? Uh, now, when Wuhan was shut down, uh, the next day, uh, the, the country, you know, shut down wildlife trade. And one month later, February 24th, uh, the wildlife trade, uh, you know, ban was elevated as a national legislative policy. Uh, so the wildlife market or wildlife wet market uh, was shut down immediately. Now, towards the end of March, China reopened its economy uh, towards the end of March, and businesses started to come back because the panda pan pandemic was, you know, nearly, you know, under control uh, around uh, March the 28th, 29th. And, uh, you know, there were reports in Western media saying that, oh my God, you know, China has reopened the wet markets. Uh, so I don't, I don't know if I talked about it last time. Wet markets, there are two kinds of wet markets. One is wildlife wet market or wildlife market. That's a smaller number uh, across the country, very small, small number. But there, there is another kind of wet market, which is a wet market for livestock, like a live chicken, uh, ducks, rabbits, Right, you can go there and buy a chicken and have it slaughtered and processed for you. So that market, that kind of wet markets for livestock, right, are more common in China. Right now, even though more common compared with wildlife wet market, but they are still you know small in sales. You know, majority of the people in China go to supermarkets, go to Western style supermarkets to buy uh, frozen meat. Only the oldest, like my parents' generation, will go to this you know, livestock wet market 
to have a you know live chicken and slaughtered. So uh, yes, re restored business restored, but wildlife market are not reopened. So they're still you know uh, closed. Uh, now in the last uh, uh, three months since uh, the reopening of uh, businesses in China, we have seen China taking uh, other actions against uh, uh, you know related to animals. For example, uh, China uh, published a catalog of livestock, and uh, you know certain wildlife wildlife species are included in that catalog. So those are allowed to be uh, farmed, to be treated, and to be you know consumed. So most of the other wildlife animals are not allowed to be treated. So that's one. And another, China is, you know, buying out all the wildlife farmers so that they can move to different uh, livelihoods. So a lot of those animals were, you know, uh, disposed, you know, by different ways. Some other ways are not very humane. Uh, but these farmers were uh, get on the government's, you know, buyout plan. Uh, so that's another you know progress so it shows that the chinese government is determined to end massive wildlife farming and a wildlife consumption right so they realize there is a strong connection between wildlife farming wildlife consumption wildlife wet marketing and you know outbreak pandemics now there is also other you know accomplishments you know china elevated the pangolin protection from you know category two to category one, which is the most protected, and China also you know uh, it, the national government announced that the dogs are companion animals, so they can should not be should not be slaughtered, traded, and uh, consumed. And two cities outlaw the dog meat consumption and dog meat trade. So all these you know uh, show that uh, even though there are a lot of you know conspiracy theories going on that uh, the virus uh, did not come from uh, the market like uh, Secretary of State of, of the United States Pompeo said that you know the virus could have come out of a, a research lab right but the Chinese government stay focused on cracking down on wildlife trade which is you know commendable so that's yeah, uh, that uh, is interesting. So that also brings uh, to the question of the economics uh, surrounding some of these policies as well, right? So, yeah. you know, and once again, I'd like to follow up from some of our discussions last time, and I hope uh, yeah. there's a fair amount of intersection in the audience between those who attended last time versus this time. Um, so last time we also spoke about the fact that a lot of the uh, trade, wildlife trade also happens because there, there is demand from outside of China, right? I yeah. mean, um, so there are obviously sort of trade consequences. Um, and the second fascinating thing that I would, maybe you could start off with before we talk about the trade consequences is about the plan to relocate these farmers, right? So. This is something, um, you know, I've read, but I don't know the details of it. Yeah. Uh, if you could sort of spend just maybe a couple of minutes talking about, you know, how this, uh, you know, sort of uh, source of livelihood itself yeah. has been, uh, you know, dealt with by the Chinese government. And then maybe talk a little bit about the trade consequences, you know, of, of this uh, wildlife trade itself. Then, you know, we could uh, maybe... You know, take off from there uh, to other questions. Yeah, yeah, that that's a great question. Yes, you know, China, the Chinese government used the wildlife farming as a way to fight the poverty. China still has about thirty million people living under the official, you know, poverty line in China. Now, twenty twenty, originally, was the year that China would be poverty free. So that's why a lot of these, you know, farmers in less developed areas of the country have been encouraged to do wildlife farming in the last seven or eight years. So the government put in a lot of money. They, they, they give money to the farmers to, to, to breed, say, civet cat, uh, bamboo rats, snakes, or other wildlife animals. Now, when the pandemic happened, 
So they want the farmers to stop farming these animals. But the farmers were saying, hey, you encourage us to do this. If we get away, then we will lose all the money we put in. So the government decided to come up with, with a bio-order plan. And the bio-order plan was issued in April and started with the two provinces with most wildlife farms. And one is Jiangxi, one, another is Hunan. Now the plan was something like this, right? So the government would pay a fixed sum of money for each individual, say, bamboo rat. If you have a 200 bamboo rat, everyone will have a, a certain amount. So that um, the government gives you money, you dispose the animals, right? So that's the uh, uh, plan. And also there's another, you know, um, uh, approach that the uh, farmers can do. If you want to keep some of the animals, that's okay, but not for the food market, is for traditional medicine or for zoos or you know uh, other institutions. But the thing is, you know, zoos and uh, traditional medicine do not need this many you know animals. It's millions, right? tens of millions of bamboo rats. So majority of those were uh, were disposed. So that's the uh, idea. And also the money comes mostly from the local governments uh, to pay for these uh, you know farmers. And so far, it has been very successful. Uh, there is very little resistance uh, from the uh, uh, farmers, even though the industry and uh, some of the association of farmers associations have voiced uh, you know, strong opposition, uh, but so far the resistance is very uh, little. So one thing probably I, I want to emphasize is this. In China, if the national government wants to do something, right? And uh, it can accomplish a lot of stuff. Like I'm sure you, you guys know very well, China has a one-child policy, right? And to Im impose one-child policy against a tradition of, you know, Chinese, big Chinese family, that was enormously, you know, difficult for the authorities. But they use an iron fist and to impose it, right? Otherwise, Chinese population today would be, you know, exceeding, would have exceeded two uh, billion people, right? Uh, but anyway, so uh, it's a strong national government, you know, uh, uh, determination to do it. And the local government has to comply. Now, one thing why local government comply in this particular matter, because the local officials, like governors, city and mayors, especially governors, they are appointed by the national government. Unlike in India or United States, people vote for the governors. In China, governors has to listen to Beijing. If you don't, you know, carry out Beijing's, you know, directions, you will cost your, you will lose your job. So that's another. I don't know whether that's a benefit, right, or you know, um, a problem, right? But in a time of a crisis, you know, they can mobilize the entire country, you know, faster. Great. Uh, so let's talk about the wildlife. Uh market itself right uh, yes. you know if from a global perspective right so last yeah. time once again to if you recall our conversations we spoke yeah. about uh, the fact that only a part of the consumption of this wildlife uh, yes. uh, wild animals are consumed in china so that is there are countries like for example thailand uh, and elsewhere in the world not only doing uh, engaging themselves in wildlife trade even india does that as you yeah. mentioned last time um, yeah. But it's uh, also consumed by the rest of the world, not just China yeah. alone. So, um, what is the status of uh, wildlife, the market itself, the global market itself? For example, has it moved? You know, has the center of production essentially moved to other parts of the world, or are people sort of cutting down on consumption in the market itself? Is weaning down at this point in time? So, if you could, um, you know, yeah. give us a sense of that. Yeah, China has the world's biggest uh, wildlife industry, and I believe I mentioned last time, uh, it has five components. The biggest component is fur animal farming, which is still going on. China produces the biggest amount of furs for the world market. Uh, now, that one is still going on. The second piece is wildlife breeding for the food, food market, exotic food market. That one has been shut down. Uh, that's the second biggest piece, which accounted for uh, like a 20 billion US dollars, the, the annual revenue in 2016. Uh, today, uh, I mean, 2019 would be bigger. Now, 
20 billion dollars, right? Uh, that's a lot of money, right? Now, the third piece is for traditional Chinese medicine. And the fourth piece is for zoos and display. And the last piece for laboratory use, the, the breed monkeys for research. Right? Now, the wildlife industry as a whole is a 77 billion US dollars industry. Now, 77 billion US dollars is what a concept. That's twice the size of North Korea's GDP. So you see how big it is, right? right. Okay, but, but the thing is, uh, as I said, majority of the people don't eat the wildlife, right? So China is more a con consumer of wild animals from different parts of the world. So say pangolins came to China from Southeast Asia, from Africa. And uh, you know, monitors, big lizards, snakes largely come from Southeast China. So China is the net importer. Uh, and also, you know, uh, some Chinese want to have, uh, you know, wild animals for traditional medicine. That's why there is a so-called tiger trail connecting Tibet with uh, Nepal and India, right? So China, India, you know, uh, officials met several times right, since 2010 uh, regarding, you know, tiger protection in India. So China is a net uh, importer. Uh, so the impact of the world now, since the uh, pandemic, because China's wildlife market was shut down, and uh, the drastic reduction of uh, wildlife consumption, uh, so the the impact, the pressure for those animals from Southeast Asia, from Africa, has also been you know stopped, and the import has been stopped, which is you know not necessarily a bad thing, right? So that would be the good thing, uh, the good side effect of the pandemic. But the thing is, you, you mentioned a very important point. Some Chinese businesses, because they cannot do wildlife, you know, catering businesses in China uh, as they did in the past, they're trying to move the business over to the border to China's neighboring countries. I have not read about uh, over to South Asia, India, Pakistan, or Nepal, but I have read about uh, some of those businesses are thinking of moving to Myanmar to Thai and to Vietnam, right? So they would, uh, the, the travel agencies would arrange one day tour of Myanmar. So to, 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 to bus Chinese tourists to Myanmar on the other side of the border with wildlife restaurants, wildlife market for them to, to eat there. So that's something we had to watch, right? So the cause for international cooperation between you know, Myanmar and China, so that this kind of, you know, uh, a spreading out, you know, activity must be stopped. So what are other, so as a response to that question, so what are other countries uh, sort of doing to rein in uh, this trade uh, in the, uh, you know, as an aftermath of the uh, pandemic, um, including India, right? I mean, uh, I, we, you know, there have been, at least I haven't read in the papers, maybe some of our uh, well-informed audience might have read uh, uh, some of those in the papers, but you know, it'd be useful to sort of, if you can give us a sense of what are the other countries now doing as a response to uh, you know, this tourism that you spoke about, people going out of China to these neighboring countries uh, and consuming yeah. all these wild elements and coming back. So what are the other countries, including maybe India, so you could do you could answer it in two parts. What are some of the Asian countries, the neighbors of China, doing? And then maybe you could, if you could, spend a few minutes uh, on India, that would be great. I know India uh, does have wildlife consumption among also very small number of people, and in different regions, one of the uh, wildlife consumption uh, wild animal that being cons consumed uh, includes the monkeys uh, in one part of India. So the uh, in uh, Indians called it bush meat. Right? So that's uh, even though it's not a big you know amount, but that's a potential, you know, potential you know hotbed for a pandemic because when you slaughter monkeys, right, especially for people who process who slaughter monkeys, they could be scratched, they could be bitten by the monkeys, and that's the way that um, uh, the uh, virus from the monkeys could go into you know human body, right. Uh, and I have read about um, 
uh, animal protection organizations, wildlife protection organizations in India, who are calling for uh, the government to look into the matter and to take actions which is a positive as a result of what's you know uh, happening in the world. Uh, so yes, India has a you know bushmeat issue. Right? Now, uh, Southeast Asia, like Vietnam, uh, Cambodia, and Thai, uh, Laos, and Myanmar, Indonesia, Philippines have all uh, you know wildlife consumption issues and. Uh, and as far as I know that uh, Vietnam uh, has been, you know, taking actions to uh, restrict uh, wildlife sales on the market, uh, which is a positive step. Now, in fact, besides China, Vietnam is one of the major markets and then followed by Indonesia, right? Now, bat eating, yeah, consumption of bats, mostly, you know, concentrated in Indonesia. And uh, you know, one other country yeah, close to Indonesia. Uh, in fact, in China, you know, bat uh, is not consumed by uh, the consumers. There might be a few, you know, areas, you know, sm very small number of people that may may may, may eat bats. But overall, bats consumption is mostly in Indonesia and other countries. Uh, so overall, I would say, uh, wildlife consumption uh, has been recognized by. More and more people today, uh, not only in China, uh, in India, uh, animal protection organizations. And I believe I was on the uh, Indian live television interview, and I said that uh, that uh, it is important that Indian government look into the matter, uh, and for local governments to take actions. You know, wildlife consumption is a public health threat. So I'm going to move, uh, switch gears right now and talk about the, uh, a very popular question at this point in time in the area mm -hmm. of foreign relations. So mm -hmm. let me start by asking you, uh, how has the pandemic changed, uh, you know, the perception of China in the eyes of some of the foreign countries? Um, you know, what's, what's the sense from within China, right? So we read, you know, for example, the uh, consulate in Houston that was shut yeah. down a few days back. So there seems like yeah. there's a lot of uh, tension uh, that's uh, prevalent right now. We can talk about the tension between India and China in a little bit, but you know, let's talk about how the pandemic itself might have changed uh, the perception of China. Uh, you know, for for the world at large. You know, we can talk about yeah. India a little bit later. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I have to say this. You know, the uh, pandemic outbreak has caused a huge. Yeah, uh, you know, repercussion around the world. And China has been scrutinized by the international media. Uh, but generally speaking, I see, you know, mixed reaction uh, or mixed, mixed perception about China. On the one hand, you have countries and even including some people in the United States believing that China, even though the pandemic broke out in China, but the Chinese government took the matter seriously and they really did a great job. So in terms of uh, the infection you know, rate in China has been controlled under 100,000 individuals. And in terms of uh, the casualties, the death uh, was controlled under 5,000. Right? So it's, it's relatively uh, very small uh, compared uh, to the rest of the world. But of course, people say, oh, you, you, cannot, you can never trust China's statistics. Uh, I, I would say, I would agree, yeah, you cannot entirely trust the Chinese status, but there's something that they cannot hide. If the pandemic is still going on, massive deaths can continues. You know, people, they cannot open the economy. If you look at, uh, you know, uh, daily news about Shanghai, about Beijing, any other place in China, which is very easy for us to see, uh, we do see, you know, a situation uh, like uh, in the United States. So if it's not under control, they won't be able to reopen the economy. Right. Uh, so we see, you know, you know, draconian, to some it's authoritarian, you know, uh, measures that did work in China, right? Because they, they believe people, people, uh, you know, cooperate with the government because they believe that, uh, you know, this is a matter of life and death, right? So we have to live with authoritarian, you know, iron fist rule, right? In order to save our life. So they put that aside, right? So that's why there's a mixed feeling. Some people say oh, China did a great job. But of course, there is a lot of blaming going on. 
uh, around the world by right, targeting China. Uh, so the recent, uh, you know, uh, diplomatic conflicts between United States and China, to many people, are less, you know, caused by uh, the relationship, by anything in the relationship, but caused by the frustration by, you know, conservative politicians, especially Donald Trump himself, because without the pandemic, he was more likely to be, you know, re-elected. Right. But with the pandemic and with the out of control situation in the United States, Donald Trump believed that his chance of re-election becomes very unpredictable, uh, very unlikely. Right? He may still win, but more unlikely. Right? So that's why there is a lot of anger towards China, right? rather than looking at itself. Right? So when a thunderstorm comes, right? when floods come, we don't blame the sky. We have to be prepared, right? of course. right? Uh, the rain comes from the sky, right? but if you blame the sky, if you can solve the problem, just blame it. Right? You have to respond. So uh, I would say, you know, a lot of frustration from you know countries like uh, Australia, United States, right, and a, a few other countries saying that this has been all caused by China, uh, and then you, we had to hold China accountable. Uh, we should ask China for rep reparations, you know, damages. Uh, and of course, you know, uh, there is also, you know, fighting back uh, uh, by China. So the pandemic does, you know, cause an uh, image, you know, change of China around the world. So some positive, some like, now about the Chinese, the China, I have to say this, I have a, my middle school classmates, my elementary school classmates, most of them used to be uh, very, uh, how would I use that? Uh, the, used to be admirer of American or Western political system to say, you know, those systems are better than ours. Uh, but lately, a lot of, you know, my former classmates, you know, sending me messages and, you know, uh, texts saying that, um, well, it looks like a Western system is not, is not an efficient system to deal with the crisis. Ours is better. So for many years, the Chinese government has tried to teach the Chinese to to be against the Western political system and not very successful. Right? With the failure of the United States in pandemic control, you know, Donald Trump has helped the Chinese government to make the Chinese people convinced that Western democracy is really not working uh, in crisis situation. So that's the unexpected you know, side effect of this pandemic. And is that the uh, general opinion of the people at large? Uh, uh, because, you know, there are reactions as well, right? So, of course, you know, there's frustration on uh, the side of the United States and maybe countries like Australia. Yeah. But what is the... Uh, so do the Chinese people now feel that these, these uh, reactions are a bit over the top? Uh, like you said, is it... Uh, does uh, most of the population believe that it's uh, like the sky... The story of the sky that you spoke about, uh, people yeah. trying to blame the sky for rainfall uh, rather than trying to protect themselves. Is that the yes. general sense of the Chinese population as well? A, a lot, a lot. of. I, I don't have a statistics. I, I hope somebody can do a, a scientific study about the change of you know, people's attitude towards the Western system in, the, uh, in China. That would be more you know, uh, scientific. But I feel the... Uh, you know, by reading the social media posts, by reading the chat, you know, chat room discussions, and of course my family uh, in China and my classmates, uh, seems to be there's only one voice. They say, see, you know, we did a good job, right? They're very proud of, you know, uh, what China has accomplished. And then especially when United States, you know, accusing China of a, a lack of a transparency, you know, try to hide information, uh, try to deceive the world, and they were they were fighting back, you know, for the government. Not the government is not saying that they were fighting for the government, for the government, saying that, well, if we, we were not transparent, we were not transparent to Korea, to Japan, to Vietnam. But these countries, you know, picked up the message immediately, and they did not praise President Xi Jinping. Donald Trump praised President Xi Jinping in February, saying President Xi Jinping is doing a great job. He loves his people. He loved his country so much, right? And, uh, and he said China was transparent in February. Now when 
situation got out of control in the United. Now you started to blame China. So that's why, you know, what you are saying is not convincing to the Chinese, right? So Chinese government does not need to say anything. The people are fighting back. So that's the general, you know, situation I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing in China. So the unbelievable, unbelievable sea change of mindset regarding the United States. So let me ask, uh, so turn to some of the questions that came in uh, before, uh, you know, we started this conversation as well as some of the uh, questions that have been popping up on the chat window. So I, mm-hmm. I, I'm going to sort of cluster them uh, in, because they seem around two themes. Yes. One is um, around uh, whether, you know, given what you have said, what should we expect in the future about uh, pandemics? Because the last time that we spoke, mm-hmm. there was a general sense that you gave us saying that, okay, look, to the extent that these markets are going to be open, uh, the, the uh, wildlife markets are going to be open, you know, there is a chance that these kinds of instances might recur in the future as well. Um, you know, a lot of uh, people over here want to know uh, whether this uh, kind of pandemic is going to be a recurring occurrence, especially from China, or uh, given some of the actions that you described that the government has taken, is it going to sort of uh, not be the case? We may not see recurrences. You know, the uh, uh, reoccurrence of this pandemic, I cannot rule out the possibility that they will happen, not happen again. Uh, in China. Why in China? I have been, you know, talking to different media uh, in the last few, few rounds. Why China? It's, it's not because of Chinese culture, not because of Chinese people, not because of, you know, Chinese, you know, preference for wildlife uh, meat. It's because of the mode of production. Why? Because everything in China today is enormous. Now, India has wildlife trade in a very small scale, Right, monkey meat trade, very small scale, and no, not a trans, uh, you know, state transport of live monkeys to another place and to slaughter that. That did not happen in India. Uh, in Indonesia, it's a local wildlife consumption. They get the animals from the mountains and sell to the market, the local market. China is not like this. Everything in China is industrialized in scale. So they have, you know, wildlife farms in Hunan. And then they sell the wild animals in Hubei, which is Wuhan, right? They could be 700 miles in a distance. So live animals shift in great number to another place. When different animals are in crowded you know, conditions, in mixed with other animals, that's the, the breeding you know, ground for pandemic, for, you know, for the mutation of viruses and for pandemic you know, getting out of control. So it's really not you know, uh, the country or the culture or the people, it's the mode of production. And some people say, hey, in ancient China, people also ate wildlife animals. So why we did not have that pandemic? My question is, you did not know. There was no modern transportation, maybe in regionalized location, it took place, right? But another thing, you know, in ancient China, it was very hard to, to hunt so many animals, right? And, in ancient China, people did not breed wildlife animals in great quantity. How many animals they breed in China? In China, wildlife, you know, millions, you know, tens of millions, right? So that's why it's the enormity, it's the intensive farming that caused the problem. China is more likely to have the problem because of the industrialized scale. Now, having said that, other countries like India, Pakistan, uh, Indonesia, Vietnam, African countries. As long as you have wild animal consumption or wildlife trade, no matter how small it is, there could, could still be, you know, the possibility that they could cause a problem. We know that the AIDS, you know, virus right, spread from con- consuming you know, chimpanzee, right? That's a very small number and got, you know, out of control and become a global, you know, pandemic. So that's why, you know, we had to be very careful. So the uh, sense that I get from you is that the uh, odds would be lower, but you cannot completely rule it out. Uh, you cannot completely rule. Now, another thing I want to add, not just wildlife animal farming, wildlife animal trade is a problem. You know, regular livestock farming is also a problem. Yeah. Right? And China, India, both countries have, uh, you know, two of the biggest, uh, you know, livestock industries. We have to be careful because we have a large number of animals in concentrated feeding operations. 
So we have to be also watch those two. So there is the second cluster of questions, which is around uh, India-China relations, right? So there is mm -hmm. a general perception, at least from this side uh, of the world, that there's been mm -hmm. sudden aggression of China, mm -hmm. for example, the Indian Ocean, the South China Sea, mm -hmm. uh, the Galwan Valley in India as well. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, is, is there a link between the recent you know, what at least the press, uh, the Western press and maybe the media even in India looks at uh, the sudden Chinese aggression and the pandemic. Is there a connection between these at all? Uh, or is this a reaction to how, you know, maybe the world is perceiving China post the pandemic? What's, what's your sense from a political perspective? Yeah, I think there are two aspects to it. On the one hand, China believe it's a time that China uh, increase its, uh, you know, military presence uh, in South, you know, uh, South uh, China Sea area, because they consider South China, uh, you know, South China Sea Island, uh, part of a Chinese territory, and has been, you know, ignored by many decades of, uh, in the past, China was weak before now, it has capability to do things, right? So they build artificial islands, right? They reinforce the maritime claim, right? And I'm sure you guys all know that China had a so-called nine dotted lines, right? Around South China Sea, you know, line, dotted lines. So in the, all the areas inside that dotted line, very close to the uh, Philippines and Vietnam, uh, you know, borders, they're considered inside the dotted line, are uh, Chinese, you know, islands. Uh, so that caused a lot of, you know, but there was one thing I want to correct, uh, which uh, American Secretary of State made a mistake. And he said that China, in 2009, you know, drew those dotted line on the map in South China Sea. So that was a mistake. So China sees that mistake by Pompeo. The dotted line was, was, was drawn not by communist China, was by China uh, in 1947. So when China drew those lines, China was uh, an ally of the United States. So the United States did not raise the question at that time with both countries were allies. So China turned communist in 1949. Since then, since then the dotted line become an issue. So that's, uh, so China was saying, we are not doing anything outside the dotted line. It's inside dotted line. When we were doing it inside dotted line in 1946, 1947, United States never said anything. But why now it's a problem, right? So that's, uh, uh, so give the impression that China is becoming more aggressive. But of course, as I said, the one aspect of China, so military build up in the last you know, 20 years, a double digit you know, military spending, and the second biggest military spender in the world. Right? And uh, it also in East Asia, right, the conflict with Japan, and also in you know, the Himalayan area with India. Right? So that's you know, part of the Chinese efforts to strengthen it's a military, you know, uh, to, you know, uh, reestablish, right, its claim that has been uh, not made uh, in the past when China was relatively weak. Uh, but of course, when you are building up your military, right, the other neighboring countries started to wonder, so what's your next plan, right? So that's one aspect what's on the Chinese side. Now, on the, uh, you know, our side, you know, that's the perception. Is China doing something like United States expanding to the West, to the Pacific, something, right? And also by looking at the history, uh, when the country, you know, economically become a powerhouse, uh, especially a country uh, that is uh, authoritarian, uh, it's going to use the resources to something else. So both what's happening in China and the perception of outside, you know, uh, China, so that combined, you know, to create this image of China being, uh, you know, uh, expanding and being more aggressive, more assertive in international arena. So um, the follow-on question to that is that, you know, given this frustration that China is now encountering, should it not be uh, a little slower in terms of asserting uh, some of their military capability that you spoke about? So what's your sense yes. on, on, on that? Should they go absolutely? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I would agree that uh, in view of the fact that a lot of countries have a suspicion 
and concerned about uh, uh, the so-called rising you know, power of China. Uh, China needs to be a little bit more cautious and uh, watch what it is doing. Uh, but from the perspective of the Chinese, right, uh, there, are, there are several groups inside China who are putting pressure on the Chinese government and they say that uh, if you believe that's yours, right, then you have to be persistent. Mm. You cannot change your position. Otherwise, right, you would, would be, you know, inviting self-defeat, uh, you would be self-defeating. Right? So there's a lot of, you know, internal pressures on the Chinese government to be strong, right? To be, uh, you know, to be assertive. And the Chinese government is trying to balance the different voices, right? Now, there's one thing that, um, you know, outsiders, you know, uh, have not been able to see. China strongly believe if you are weak, you are going to be bullied, right? And then they say, uh, United States has never been, you know, has never, you know, uh, the same in this, the, 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 always the same. The, the military spending, the United States, you know, focus on Chinese military spending a lot. Uh, and the China said, uh, well, you know, U US has the biggest military spending. So what's the moral ground for you to criticize China, right? And the, the, the Chinese keep saying that uh, China suffered, uh, you know, a century of humiliation at the hands of imperialist powers in the past. Right? So China will never allow itself to be bullied anymore. So all this has something to do with the nationalist, you know, uh, rejuvenation of the Chinese you know, nation. Uh, so it's a, a tougher situation. Right? So may, may I then summarize this by saying that, okay, look, this is not something uh, that is reactionary from the Chinese side, but the reaction of the other countries uh, is, is uh, you know, sort of accentuated simply because of uh, the frustration on account of the outbreak of the COVID pandemic. Is that, is that a right way to summarize? Uh, you know, I would say the, uh, the pandemic has, uh, you know, worsened the frustrations of outside uh, other countries uh, towards China. Uh, so China has actually, you know, China has been, uh, you know, building artificial islands in South China Sea since 2011, mm -hmm. right? And they had enormously, you know, enlarged so those, you know, artificial islands, right? And there have been, you know, conflicts with uh, the Philippines and the international community has been, you know, talking about it for a long time. But of course, uh, so when you look at China today, uh, China's, you know, uh, transformation has been, you know, earth-shaking. When I first came to the United States 33 years ago, one of my professors put me into his office and asked me, when do you think China is going to catch up with the United States? So that was 1987. You know what I answered him? Uh, there is no way China can catch up with the United States anyway. And he said, uh, and he was, why are you so pessimistic? I said, look at the United States. You have highways, you have, you have all this, you know, uh, industry, right? The living standards, you know, shopping malls. And I just came from China. China, you know, had no shopping mall. You know, everything was rationed, right? Uh, but I have to say this. Um, uh, so that was, yeah, I said, if China ever be able to catch up, it would be another 200 years, right? But I have to say this, you know, I went back to China 10 years after I was in the United States. Uh, and I was uh, astounded, right? My hometown, the entire city was pulled down and a new building went up. I was in China last October for a conference with, uh, you know, a bunch of you know, professors from the United States. And we took the bullet train you know, from, uh, you know, a Northeast China city to Beijing, used to be 20 hours ride, but now just four, four hours. Oh, so wow. they had this amazing, you know, transformation and I remember when I went to come to the United States 33 years ago, the plane, you know, stopped over in Tokyo, Japan. And I look outside the countryside of Japan. It was, you know, very neat. The houses are so clean. But when we, last year, when we were in Northeast China, right, the, the rural areas were, looked very much like Japan. So the, the change, fundamental, uh, fundamental change is just uh, amazing. So they have a large, you know, uh, quantity of resources in the hands of the government. 
So the government believe it's time that they, you know, safeguard the territorial integrity and to protect the territory. So, you know, on the one hand, it's understandable, but on the other hand, there yeah, is that, uh, you know, when you are increasingly powerful, you have to be more uh, sensitive. Cautious as well. Um, I want to, uh, you know, ask, there are a couple of questions about the economy, uh, things like the FDI. Yes. Uh, you know, most of the questions are about FDI uh, of India versus China. I'm not, I'm, I don't want to get into the uh, comparison uh, side of things. But let me ask you this question, right? So for the longest mm -hmm. period of time, a lot mm -hmm. of the growth of China has been export driven. Uh, attracting FDI uh, yeah. yes. uh, and yes. and and sort of focusing on exports, um, you know there is a sense in which this sort of aggression, like the world is seeing the aggression from China, might influence yeah. this FDI and move it to. Certainly, India is trying to say that okay, look, India can be an alternative and so on and so forth. So the, there is a good possibility that this FDI is going to move elsewhere. Um, yeah. So, what are the economic consequences of this? Uh, uh, sort of push uh, to uh, to save the sovereignty of China at this point in time. Is this going to also be accompanied by a fundamental shift in uh, the economic policies of, of China as well? So what's your, your sense? You know, China is like India, it's an enormous country. And uh, there is uneven development. Uh, China has relied on you know, foreign direct investment in the last 40 years. You know, otherwise you could not, I have to say, I had to, we had to give credits to this, uh, you know, international, you know, uh, funding of Chinese projects. Uh, uh, and I believe the Chinese government is aware of this and is thankful. Uh, but, you know, uh, it's likely that the, uh, you know, up to, I believe last year, China, United States are still the major destinations of this internet, uh, uh, you know, uh, direct uh, uh, foreign investment, but it's going to go down eventually in, uh, in the coming decade. But the thing is, as I said, China it has uneven development. The Western part, uh, the part of Xinjiang, Tibet, and uh, you know, Gansu, right, are you know, areas that to be developed. Now, even though China has the biggest, uh, you know, most uh, you know, breathtaking urbanization process, you know, in the last 40 years, but there are still about 30, at least 30% of the people are still, you know, solidly in rural area. So those are the people whose, you know, uh, consumption, you know, uh, potential is yet to be tapped. So, you know, if you go to China, China is like a, uh, a divided country, it's a two worlds in China. You know, if you go to urban China, I, I, I know uh, some of your colleagues have been to China, uh, the urban area, eastern coastal areas are very developed. Right? But if you go to inland areas, they are less developed. So there is a lot of potential over there. Uh, China rely on the international markets like Indian market, I'm sure, and the United States market. But China's reliance on the US market is only about less than 10% of the GDP, everything you know, combined. So it's really not that big. right? Uh, actually, you know, uh, uh, for uh, you know, foreign trade is has the weight of foreign trade has been going down uh, to the United States even less. Uh, so China needs to you know tap into its own domestic market, uh, you know, for its products. But of course, China is now you know massively investing in Southeast Asia and Africa. Right? So those are the alternative you know um, you know source of uh, you know uh, you know markets for the uh, for the Chinese products. Uh, and I uh, read about some of the software's applications are being, uh, you know, targeted by a lot of countries, including the United States, like TikTok, uh, WeChat, uh, yeah, those India applications, well. yeah. uh, India uh, as well. So China has to come up with a strategy how to, you know, uh, still stand competitive in those, you know, application markets. So um, the, the final uh, question, uh, you know, it's about two, uh, two minutes to ending it, but you know, you can take your time uh, because this has been a fascinating conversation. The final question that, you know, a lot of uh, the participants want me to ask you 
is about um, you know the the perception of the india china conflict uh, mm -hmm. that uh, recently uh, been flooding our newspapers uh, mm -hmm. and our media as well so um, a lot of uh, you know attention has been uh, you know given to how india has been dealing with it from a trade perspective right so the response mm -hmm. Uh, you know, has not been um, from a. It, it's not been military, right? It's also mm -hmm. it's sort of been on the uh, trade uh, side. So, how does um, you know China in some ways view this problem? Um, in you know, I you know, we know the military issues, right? I don't want you, you know, perhaps we should not spend time on the military issues, but then perhaps mm -hmm. we could probably touch upon um, sort of some of the economic uh, issues. Uh, and even perhaps the cultural issues that might be affected because of this uh, conflict at this point. Yeah, yes, yes. I have noticed uh, the conflict uh, along the border. Uh, it, it was unfortunate that the two major powers in Asia would come into conflict. Uh, but I have to tell you this, probably you, do, you guys don't know. When I was a little in China, we loved to watch Bollywood movies. <laughs> uh, some of those movies were black and white. And some of those songs, because a lot of songs, a lot of dancing in the movie. And some of the songs are so familiar to the Chinese. I don't know if you have a Chinese song to so familiar, you know, nationally, you know, familiar with two Indian, but you have several, you know, we have several Indian songs are so familiar nationally, you know, uh, in China. Uh, and I believe that um, the two countries, I, I see a lot of comparison uh, uh, of the two countries. I think those are comparisons that sometimes uh, does not help us understand uh, uh, the two countries. China is an authoritarian state. And uh, whatever the national government says, it's more likely to be implemented by the local governments because the local jobs, the governor's jobs, depend on the superiors in Beijing, right? And also, China is an authoritarian, had been authoritarian in the last, uh, you know, 2,000 years. Uh, so the, the national character is different. People in China, you know, tend to listen to the authority, right? They believe the authority is smarter, is wiser, right? As long as authority says what, then we should just do it, right? So that's the mindset. Now, interesting, this mindset is also very similar in Korea, in Japan, to a lesser degree, right? So that's why when you compare, say, you know, you know, family planning can be imposed strictly in China, but not necessarily in India. Right? Even though both countries have a traditional family values very similar, but China is more likely to be successful. Right? Uh, so it's a very, and also, you know, United, India is a more pluralist society, right? Democracy, you know, free society. You have a lot of, you know, uh, associations, societies, civic, civic societies, you know, posing as a strong interest group against the government. But China, the interest group, you know, civil society is relatively weak compared with India, but of course stronger than in the past, right? So uh, labor unions, trade unions, you know, women's organizations are more powerful, animal protection organizations are more powerful in India, but less powerful in China. So, you know, foreign companies can open a uh, factory in China, and the workers may be very compliant, very obedient. The work they can sit down and work for like eight hours or 10 hours over time. They don't complain, right? Because the rights awareness is much less compared with India. So there are a lot of things to compare. Uh, but eventually I would say uh, authoritarianism is not the answer uh, to the future uh, of China and the world. Uh, sure. And I believe that yeah, both so, countries have a lot to improve. Yeah. yeah so, the, but but can I then conclude that uh, the view of the Chinese uh, public is uh, very similar about India, is very similar to uh, what we uh, the the central uh, government actually feels about India at this point in time. Uh, is that because a bunch of them are asking for what it it feels about the conflict on the Chinese side. Um, as uh, as a member of uh, the, the larger public, um, I did I did see uh, what, but you know, in any society, you have uh, uh, irrational you know views, irrational voices, 
uh, voices which are uninformed and are uneducated. Uh, but I will also have to understand that uh, in you know foreign policy issues, it is really the uh, uh, the area that the elites will make the decisions, right? So people who are informed about uh, uh, other countries, about the uh, India, about United States, will be more influential. But uh, you know the netizens, there are a lot of talk, uh, you know about. So their views, you know, we can just take as a reference. So we can just, you know, I would say just ignore those, you know, uh, comments by the netizens. I give one quick example, if we have time. You know, when the pandemic, you know, uh, broke out, a lot of Chinese netizens, you know, uh, criticized North Korea very badly, mm -hmm. saying North Korea is not grateful, right? Because North Korea, you know, shut down the border with China. But in fact, later, some Chinese, you know, cool-headed, you know, elites and told the netizens, it's completely, you know, legitimate for North Korea to shut down the border because for the protection of the people, right? So what do you expect them to do, right? So that's why, you know, cool and heads will prevail in, in China eventually. <clears throat> so uh, we are about uh, time. Um, so I just wanted to give two big summaries that I took away. There are lots uh, from the very insightful conversation one is about uh, there are things for other countries to learn um, from how China dealt with the pandemic itself, right? So while you know a lot of people are hung up about the cause of the pandemic and maybe the fact that China might have been one of the causes of it, um, there is a lot to learn from how the Chinese government dealt with it. That for me is uh, one takeaway. The second one is that you know the recent um, you know, foreign uh, relation tensions that China has been facing might be quite unrelated to the COVID pandemic, although the reactions of the Western world, including India, might uh, in some ways be accentuated because of the, uh, uh, the COVID uh, pandemic. So those would be the two big takeaways uh, from, for me, at least. There, are, there were lots, there were lots of interesting examples as well. Uh, this was almost like uh, hearing a session about China, uh, which was very, very, very fascinating. So thank you Good. very much, Professor uh, Lee. Um, it's been a pleasure, as always. Um, you know, I, I look forward to more such conversations in the future. Uh, and this is, frankly, um, you know, just as much learning as you gave us last time as well. Right? Thank if you. More, yeah. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah. yeah. Good luck to On all behalf you, all of the special interest groups, thank you so much, Professor Anand, for moderating uh, and bringing out all the nuances of what Professor Lee had to say. And Professor Lee, thank you so much for doing a second round of this and throwing light on this. We hope that you'll come to India and we'll shortly show you a Bollywood movie of your choice. <laughs> great, great, great. Yes, we'll get yes. you to sing uh, the Bollywood uh, song that you remember. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, the, there is there is a one like da 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 something like that. You know, it's very good. Yeah, we all know that. <laughs> Make sure you're recording, Rima. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank okay. you so much, professors. Thank you, so much. thank you. Okay. Great. Great. Uh, stay safe. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Rima. Thank you, Parul and Himanshu.